Governor Polis wants Colorado's energy to be 100% renewable. But what is that going to cost? I put that question to energy expert Jake Fogelman. This is also the audio version of our television show, Devil's Advocate. You can watch that show by going to youtube.com and searching for our channel, IITV. That stands for Independence Institute Television, or just go to thinkfreedom.org. You're gonna find this a very expensive conversation. Do you enjoy your energy bills? They're only going to get better and better and better. Do you like having blackouts and brownouts? They're only going to get worse. But Jake Fogelman has all the answers. Jake, answer. <laughs> yeah, well, first of all, John, it's great to be here. Uh, but as you set the stage for the doom and gloom, uh, we've been doing some busy work here at the Energy and Environmental Policy Center. And we just published our first report in a series about Colorado's energy future looking at some of the policies that this current administration and the rest of the Democratic Party are pushing on the state. So let's set the stage, which is we're going to have a all renewable energy system by 2040. Wasn't that the promise of our governor? Yeah, if Governor Jared Polis gets his way, he campaigned on that. He's every chance he gets to talk about energy, that's what he says. Let me just try to understand what the promise was. Was it a carbon neutral? Was it all renewables? What exactly did he promise? I mean, because it's kind of vague to me. No, that's All I know was 2040, when the man is out of office, he made a promise that we're gonna have an all carbon neutral, was that the pro- promise, all renewable? Yes, that's, it's a very important distinction that you made because he always uses the word renewable. And why that matters is renewable and carbon-free are not the same thing, even though the effect on fighting climate change would be the same thing. Renewable specifically refers to things like wind, solar, hydro. Carbon-free includes things like nuclear, which coincidentally is the single largest carbon-free source of electricity in the country, and then carbon capture on fossil fuels. So natural gas plant with carbon capture would also be a carbon-free resource, but it's not included in renewable, and our governor always says the word renewable. So what's odd about this? And tell me if I've got this one wrong. I've kept an eye on the sources of energy. I'm talking about coal and natural gas. And the prices of these commodities, roughly, over the last couple of decades, have been at the lowest prices they have ever been. Yeah, there are a couple spikes and this and that. But overall, it just continues to go down and down and down and down in price. And the usage of electricity, including the lights around here, the usage in the United States also continues to go down and down and down and down. So, now, I took a couple econ classes. And let me see if I got this right. The inputs, the supply, has never been more abundant, more cheap. The demand has never been less. So by every economic law known to man, known to the natural universe, our energy prices should be the lowest they have ever been in a quarter of a century. I I remember the energy crisis of the 70s and 80s. We have abundant sources of energy. We are not using nearly as much as we, we had back then. We are using less than ever. We've got more sources of energy than ever. It has to be the cheapest energy of my lifetime right now. Instead, in Colorado, it is by far the most expensive it has ever been in my lifetime. Explain that to me. 
Sure. Uh, you, you raise a good point. Colorado is now the has the most expensive electricity in the Mountain West region. Uh, so it makes sense to look at these things kind of by region because regions tend to share similar weather and similar demand for electricity. So we lead the pack there. Hooray. Uh, since 20, 2004, uh, we covered this in the, in the paper, uh, was when Colorado passed its very first renewable portfolio mandate, which basically meant that the voters voted in that X percentage of our power is going to come from renewables, and then it's it was about ten percent, if I recall. I think at the time it was very low, and it's ratcheted yeah. up thanks to the legislature over time. Well, since that day, our electricity, our average electricity price, has increased by more than seventy percent. And so, as to your point, our prices have gone up and up and up as things like the shale revolution and you know coal mining. We've gotten much better at coal mining. All these things that should be creating abundance uh, are instead creating more expensive electricity because it just becomes so much more complex to run an electric grid when you're adding all of these inputs that don't share similar characteristics to the inputs we used to use to generate electricity. So you have sort of a competing thing going on that grid operators have to balance. And then, of course, there's always the big elephant in the room, XL, who profits off of all of this. So I want to get to both of these. I, I think about Moore's law in electronics, uh, a guy who said, wait a second, it sure seems like computing power every other year or so doubles that is, the, the processing power doubles, and the price of that computing power halves, which is why our technological revolution just keeps growing and growing and growing, and the computers just get better and better and faster and more amazing. And in the same way, in energy, because of technology, the fuel prices keep dropping and dropping and dropping, and because we find technological advances, when we started doing the show 25 years ago, we had incandescent lamps running stage lighting and studio lighting, which took a lot. They, they, would, they were 1K lamps. These are all LEDs now taking a little bit of power, sure. doing the same candlelight. And so we're using less and less and less. But yet the costs keep going up and up and up. It goes opposite of Moore's Law. That's right. Because of the mandates. That's right. Combination... Only reason. Combination of mandates and then just the way that we do electricity policy, at least in Colorado, with how utilities make money. So Talk to they, me a little bit they about They go that. hand in hand. Talk to me a little bit about that because, amazingly, Excel makes more money, and the private utilities make money not by making electricity. I want to make it really clear. Excel is not in the electricity game. They're in the building stuff and then charging double, triple, quadruple for it. They're in the power building game. That is, they want to build power plants, doesn't matter what they are, run cables, doesn't matter to where, that's where they make their money. Yeah, that's right. So uh, we operate under what's called the cost of service model because Excel is a traditional monopoly utility. And how they make money, as you pointed out, is they get to recoup their investments on any capital investment. So anything from a power plant to a transmission line to corporate offices to... <laughs> vacation policies for their employees, anything that causes them to spend money that then gets approved by the Public Utilities Commission, they get to collect the money they spent, plus an extra, usually around 8 to 10% on top of that that they get to keep as profit. So, every pencil they buy, right. every corporate swag they buy, every shirt that says Excel, everything. As long as the PUC says that's okay, they get to make 10% on that. So like the Comanche plant, when they buy a coal-fired power plant, they, make, they buy a mortgage, and we have to pay off the mortgage. When they refit it, which they did, that's a second mortgage, we have to pay that mortgage too. So we're paying twice for the same energy. Then when they say, you know, we're gonna close that and we're gonna turn it into um, a wind farm or natural gas, 
then we get to pay for a third mortgage for the same power. And if it's a wind farm, we're going to need a jack a backup generator, which is a natural gas generator. That's a fourth one. Oh, and we're going to need a new set of, of, of power lines to that backup generator. So we're going to need a fourth mortgage for that. So for the same electricity that's coming out of your wall, you're paying four mortgages for the same watt, the same wattage to turn on the same lamp. Yep, essentially. What, what a mafioso spectacular plan. Oh, it's a great racket. Yeah. <laughs> essentially, <laughs> the state's energy policy has just been a license to print money for utilities like XL or, or Black Hills. Um, and this is happening in states. All yeah. Colorado is not necessarily unique in this, but this is just the nature of the beast. And it's like, as you said, it's a pretty great racket if you can get away with it. But it goes through the PUC, which sure. is hand chosen by? Yeah, by the governor. The governor, they're all political appointees. Yeah, so it goes back to the one man who promised renewables all around. Yep, and herein lies, it's a closed loop system, and herein lies the problem why we're headed this direction. So before you were born, uh, I've had environmentalists go up and sit in the seat and say, you know, renewables, it's going to lower energy prices. Because what you don't get is, I mean, coal, you have to pull it out of the ground, it's expensive. The wind blows for free. The sun shines for free. So therefore, the energy will be for free. <laughs> Why is that wrong? Uh, yeah, I'm glad you bring this up because this is one of the big dividing lines in energy policy because uh, renewables advocates will correctly point out that the cost to install wind and solar has declined dramatically over the last 10 years thanks to technological innovation, some of its subsidies, so taking money out of our, our pockets, uh, the tax man. Uh, but what that doesn't account for is the cost, as I alluded to earlier, the increased complexity of running a balanced grid. So say, yeah, it's all well and good to add... What's a balanced grid? So electricity is a, a very unique commodity in that it must be consumed the exact minute it's generated. So that, you know, if a whole block of the, of the city decides to turn their lights off all at once, the grid operator, in this case XL, has to throttle down the electricity output because if they don't, it overloads the grid and the grid goes down. Same thing the other way. If suddenly demand for electricity increases because it's hot outside and everyone turns their AC on or, or what have you, they must dispatch power from one of the generators to get that electricity to where it needs to be. And that becomes pretty easy with stuff like coal and natural gas, which is what's known as dispatchable energy, meaning you can dispatch it on demand whenever you need it. Just burn some more gas, burn some more coal, we'll send that power down the line. You turn up the knob. Right, essentially. But with wind and solar, that's a little more tricky because they, those are not dispatchable resources. They're what's known as intermittent resources, where their output is solely reliant on Mother Nature cooperating. So you can't tell the sun, hey, would you, you know, maybe turn it down a little bit? We don't quite need so much electricity. And the grid operators are left to then sort of figure out how to keep a grid in balance with these resources that are now taking their time to keep everything all in play at once. And that increases costs for, for you and me. So in other words, you're sweltering the heat. Everyone turns on the air conditioning and go, yeah, we need more wind power. And so everybody's got to go out and spin the wheels themselves or something right. like that. Yeah, go all blow right. on the windmill. <laughs> but, all right, but let's, let's assume even though there would be wind blowing all the time, then, then, then it's free, right? Well, yeah, if, if wind, if you could design a system in which the wind was constantly blowing and you could dial it whenever you wanted it to, it would be a pretty cheap I've form heard of guys electricity. Say, yeah, yeah, but you don't understand the wind is always blowing somewhere. Sure. And therefore, you know, it's instant to, to bring it in from Wyoming or from Texas or from Nova Scotia or wherever. It just travels free. It's like a phone call. And therefore, you know, we just bring it in here and bring it in there. And we, it's just a nice, easy system to bring it in anywhere. 
The problem with that line of thinking, which is a common line of thinking, um, is that trans transmission lines are a huge constraint. There, we don't have enough transmission for all this generation people want to build, and getting a transmission line built is not only very expensive, but it kind of pisses people off because it tends to run through, you know, farmers' property, folks that don't really live where the power is being consumed, but all of a sudden they have this big ugly power line in their yard that has to be built to, to get that energy to where it's going. And twofold, it also is sort of a fallacy because if everyone's thinking the same thing that, oh, someone else, the wind will be blowing <laughs> some more, we'll all just pass around this wind power. Well, to paraphrase M Margaret Thatcher, uh, the problem with California-style energy policy is eventually you run out of other people's energy. And you run out of other people's wind. Yeah. The other part is wires are also suck up energy. It's sure. like a big toaster. You know, you, the longer the wire, the more sure. it dissipates. Yep. It, it, it's a big conductor. That's it, right. It's not free. It, it does this stuff. All right. So getting back to the promise, by 2040, Colorado is going to be all 100% renewable energy. You've been looking at the numbers. You've yep. been studying the numbers. You've hired nationwide consultants to look at the numbers. Is it doable? Uh, well, it de depends on how you define doable. <laughs> I find doable as doable. We, we have 6 million people. We'll have more than 6 million people, I assume. And, it's, and you think about it, it's only 17 years right. from now. That's right. I mean, that sounds like a long time for, for you. For me, that's, that's next week sure. at my age. So we know how much money, how much energy we're using. Yep. Uh, half of half of the fuel we're using right now is still fossil fuel. It's yep. mostly coal. More than half, yeah. More than half. Yep. You know, that's why I see people in their Teslas going, oh, this is good for the earth. It's like, it's a coal-powered car. <laughs> yeah, it's you fossil know? fuels at a distance. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's like, it's, it, this is fossil fuels that somebody else has to deal with. And I'm right. saving the environment. That's right. Oh, good God. No, first of all, we're all paying for your Tesla. You're not paying for it. Sure. It's all... It, it, you would never have bought that Tesla if not for the massive corporate welfare. That's right. And I think what people don't get, it's not just the corporate welfare that um, they get to build them, all the subsidies for the factories and to do it, and all the subsidies you get to buy it. Here's your subs. But it's the pollution tax credits that Elon Musk gets uh, because he gets to, all, every, all these manufacturers get a certain amount of, of credits. Yep. But gasoline-powered ones use all their credits because theirs cars have tailpipes. Right. His has no tailpipes, so he has all these credits, and the other companies buy his credits. Yep. So he makes all this money because of his credits. Yep. It's all it's cronyism. Gr great racket that we were talking another about. Another great earlier. racket yeah. of the new energy economy. Yep. It, it's all cronyism. So people are. It's it's a modern gold rush for people who are on the inside sure. of government cronyism. Sure. All right. When I say, will it work, in 17 years, I turn on a light switch, does a light turn on? Well, uh, we can make it work in the model, and it can't work all the time, because that's, that's one of our findings that we can get into if you want that. Even despite all of the stuff that we did to get to, get to a 100% renewable grid, which, by the way, would uh, require over 100 gigawatts of new capacity in the next 17 years, uh, for folks that don't know, that's about I don't know what that means. six and a half times more capacity than is currently on our grid um, in a matter of 17 years. So what we looked at is uh, essentially it's a ton of new wind, a ton of new solar, a ton of new batteries. And the model selected those quantities because for most of the year, it can muddle along fine. It's a, it's a preposterous amount of capacity. But if that was the parameters, we could make it work. But however, 
If you look at 2021 weather profiles and what's known as the capacity factors of wind and solar, meaning how much of their potential output were they actually putting out during that time period, we'd have something like 25 hours of blackouts in the months of January and February based on real world, con real world conditions that happened two years ago. So in some hypothetical 2040, we're under this great 100% renewable grid and we have, still have 25 hours of blackouts in the coldest winter months because guess what? Sometimes in the winter, the sun isn't shining and sometimes the wind isn't blowing. I'm trying to understand what you just told me. <laughs> All right, so right now we produce as much energy as we produce. Given the models you have, you're saying in order to have enough energy, we need to build six times yes. more power generation than we have now. And that gets back to what the, the comment about intermittency. So when you're planning an electric grid, you have to, you can't just meet demand for a normal day. Grid planners have to be able to meet the peak demand when electricity theoretically is going to be at its height. They can't just say, oh, sorry, you know, crazy hot day. We're not going to be able to cut it. People won't stand for that. So not only do you have to build excess capacity that goes unused most of the time, but because it's intermittent, you also have to factor in that some of the time that extra capacity might not be available because maybe it's a cloudy day, maybe we're undergoing a wind drought. So you have to do something called overbuilding. And this is a very you know, well-known term in the energy space. You have to overbuild intermittent renewables to account for the fact that on any given day, a certain percentage of them will not be generating electricity. Let me put it in terms familiar to me. I was the chairman of the RTD board. Sure. And people would go, why do you have all these big buses that are empty most of the time? And go, that's a good question. And I go, why are these buses empty most of the time? You guys look at me like, listen, you idiot. Because we have a peak problem. People go to work in the morning, people go to work in the evening, and it's jammed packed. So we build buses for those peaks. Yep. And in the middle of the day, they're not full. Yep. So what do you want me to do? have two, three different types of fleets so we can drive around in little buses in the day and then have other <laughs> ones. No, so that's why we have these buses. In the same way, uh, peak power happens when peak power happens. Yep. And then sometimes during that peak power, you have these massive spikes during a heat wave sure. or a cold spell or whatever it is. Yep. And that's why it's built for that. Yep. And since coal or natural gas can be expanded by, oh, wow, we've really got to turn it up. You can turn it up and then turn it way up if need be. It covers most of those, those things. Sure. But, you know, hey, turn up the sun. Can't. Turn up the wind. Can't. So you have to overbuild the systems That's right. for those peaks. And to be fair, we also built battery storage. We assumed a certain amount of four-hour battery storage because that's, you know, you always hear that. When people point out right. the intermittency of wind and solar, just, ah, batteries will take care of it. Don't worry about <laughs> it. <laughs> we have batteries. Well, you also hear... <clears throat> about hydro. Sure. But people don't like dams. That's right. People do not like dams. When Governor Owens passed a, or tried to pass a, a, an issue to build more dams here, uh, he got shot down in every county. Was, That's right. It was amazing. Nobody wanted dams in their county, but that uh, large-scale dams are not even considered renewables under today's legislation. I'm, I'm glad you pointed that out because in our model, we specifically did not increase hydropower capacity we because kept, it doesn't, we, we kept not, the existing hydropower right. because it's already there. But you're right. Everyone, as soon as XL or another utility proposes a hydro plant, people come out of the woodworks, they scream, they shout. And you're right, under the state's statutory definition of a renewable energy, uh, 
uh, source, it says that large-scale hydropower does not apply. It has to be less than 10 <laughs> megawatts to, be, to count as renewable. Stop that, because this is, this is amazing. So even if we built a new dam, yeah. a big new dam, it's Hoover Dam, that's not renewable energy under Colorado law. Yeah, at least according to the state staff. To you and me, we would say that's a renewable energy plant, but yeah. under it, Colorado it law. Snow falls, yeah. it rains, it fills it up, and then next year it does it again. It seems pretty renewable. Right. But to Colorado standard, no, that's not renewable yeah. at all. Under current statute, that is correct. Isn't that bizarre? Well, it goes to the point that I was making earlier about the arbitrariness of these definitions, right? Because the same thing applies to nuclear. Nuclear is not technically renewable but it's the single largest source of carbon-free power in America right now. And I thought the whole point was, let's reduce carbon emissions. Well, it doesn't fall under the renewable statute, and we gotta do 100% renewable, so we can't touch that. Can't touch, can't so it's touch. It's all very arbitrary. All right, so how much, how much is this gonna cost sure. me? Again, fuel is the cheapest it's ever been. We're using less of it than it's ever been. Our bills should be the cheapest they have ever been in my life. Uh, it, it, it's like phone service. Phone service, really, we don't have phones anymore. You know, it should cost next to nothing. Nobody should be paying anything to keep ourselves warm right now and cool in the summer, uh, if, if not for these mandates. But what is, what's it going to cost? So the renewable scenario under Governor Jared Polis' uh, his mandate, his goal, 100% renewables by 2040, it's gonna cost, we modeled, up to $318 billion through 2050. So we, we modeled an extra 10 years because some of the plants that would need to be built would be built on in 2020, or in 2040, excuse me. And obviously you what have to What, are you those. saying it cannot be made? We cannot make the 2040 deadline? Well, we can make it, right? So we're, we're assuming in the model that the very last of our natural gas fired power plants will be retired right at 2040 because you need them to ensure reliability every step along the way. And so that extra last little bit of wind, solar, and battery capacity comes on in our model at 2040. And so we extend the cost window an extra 10 years just to account for the fact that we're still pay we'll, yeah, we'll still be paying off those plants for another 10 years. But yeah, $318 billion. That's a wonderful number. What does it mean? Well, I don't know what that means to me. Sure. Uh, it essentially means uh, almost a quadrupling of your monthly average monthly electricity rates. Um, four times. Yes, four times. For the same electricity. That's right. So you thought that 70% stat that I quoted earlier was bad. Uh, quadruple that or quintuple that. So in 17 years, adjusted for inflation, our electric bills will be at least four times as much. Yeah, well, we modeled it in constant 2020, 2022 okay. dollars, but yes. All right, so not only that, but you're telling me we're gonna have brownouts pretty constantly. Yeah, well, what we modeled is we looked at, okay, we have all this capacity that we built to fulfill this goal. Now let's take a look at what real-world weather conditions and real-world wind and solar output have been in Colorado for the last few years. And so if you use 2022 demand and 2022 levels of output from wind and solar, we can muddle along okay. The batteries will kick in enough to cover the periods when wind and solar aren't producing so well. But if you just look back one year in 2021, Apparently, we had a pretty bad wind and solar drought in January and February. Who knew? In, in winter, it gets cloudy, and sometimes the wind doesn't blow. And under that scenario, it was the, the drought was so long that the batteries weren't enough to cover the slack, and we still found 25 hours of blackouts spread across three separate events. Can't we just be hopeful that technology will, will increase? We've got ger um, uh, geothermal, as, as our governor says, the heat beneath our feet, which I also like to say is 
coal and natural gas, which is beneath <laughs> our feet. But is it possible that there's a new technological breakthrough that takes care of all this? It is plausible. I mentioned the geothermal specifically in this paper. We didn't model it because these breakthroughs that we're talking about haven't materialized in the world yet, right? It hasn't been scaled. But theoretically, it could, right? It's really cool what they're doing with geothermal, and that would be a what, what, what I talked about, a dispatchable resource. You can kind of control how much output you get from geothermal. So if that takes off, sure, that changes the economics of this. But we just looked at real-world conditions today, okay. what's actually available now to do this modeling. You keep mentioning nuclear. Let's talk about this. Sure. It's not renewable, right? but it is the cleanest form of electricity. Uh, it scares people to death. Sure does. Uh, and, and you think about Chernobyl, and you go, no! But we've never lost a single life in the United States because of, of nuclear power. That's right. And the technology now is amazing compared to what it started off with 75 years ago. There is a movement inside the environmental movement of, of environmentalists who can do basic math. And they understand that if the goal is to reduce a carbon footprint and keep energy affordable, there is no other way to get to their goals other than to explore nuclear power. And then there's another group uh, funded a lot by groups like Excel who go, no, we, we don't really want to solve this problem. Talk to me about nuclear. Well, it's funny you bring up Excel. I think Excel is actually in the closet supporters of nuclear energy. They run two nuclear power plants up in Minnesota, uh, so they have some expertise in this area. I think they're gun shy in a state like Cal uh, Colorado. I see that Freudian right, slip. That's a great Freudian slip. <laughs> because of the group that you're talking about that would just lose their minds if Excel Why? ever proposed. Talk to me. What is modern nuclear? What is small scale nuclear? What what would a what would a Colorado nuclear power plant look like? So probably it would be one of these small-scale nuclear reactors. The industry has kind of shied away from some of the traditional large-scale reactors, even though there's some exciting new technology there as well. But essentially, just think of a, a scaled-down version of your, of your grandparents' nuclear plant. Uh, it's, instead of you know 1.2 gigawatts, it's just 300 megawatts or even less. And it's, in theory at least, supposed to be built in a factory so that you can mass-produce them and therefore drive the cost curve down over time because you're learning by doing constantly. And you can deploy them uh, much easier on site instead of doing these big giant bespoke projects like these traditional reactors. Um, and there's a lot of excitement right now uh, over these small modular reactors. Small modular reactors, paint me a picture. Do they exist? So yes, so there's demonstration projects going on at this very moment. There are a few, I know, Ontario, for example, has just ordered essentially a first-of-its-kind small modular reactor up in Canada. Uh, Russia actually has a couple small modular reactors. Oh, that just gives me all sorts of comfort. China does as well. So the only two countries that actually have small, modu small modular reactors outside of the U.S. Navy, which is what they use is similar to a small modular reactor, are China and Russia. So our geopolitical foes are kind of getting the leg up well, on us. Every, every large ship is a small modular reactor, Essentially, not? Naval submarines, naval destroyers, all these things. Every, every aircraft carrier, yep. right. But it's a small reactor. And we've been doing it for decades. Is it, how dangerous is it? Well, so this applies to both small modulars and some of the newer wave of large reactors that they're starting to design them with what's called passive safety systems. So that if there ever is, you know, God forbid, a meltdown, 
you don't have to re rely on technicians and a constant flow of power to that station to control the meltdown. That's what was one of the problems with Fukushima, for example, when the tsunami wiped out power, right. they couldn't control the meltdown. Even though it was contained, it wasn't as bad as people commonly have a view of. So these past, it wasn't Chernobyl. Right, exactly. Nobody died as a direct result from the radiation. Uh, but these passive safety systems essentially are self-containing so that if something goes wrong, it doesn't matter. You don't have to worry about the power going out or you know, a, a technician, a Homer Simpson asleep when you, on the when job. You say, when you say the power going out, you don't mean the power leaving. You're talking about the reaction chamber shuts down. Right. So the power that runs the plant that actually brings power to the grid so that you can control the machines and everything. You don't, if that goes out, it doesn't matter. In a traditional, so in a traditional nuclear power plant, you need power being generated to keep the safety system on. Yep. And to, to pump shut water, it down. To cool it. To cool it. In a modern one, you don't need that. It's all passive. If, yep. if if the power doesn't generate to keep the safety system on, it shuts down. That's right. That's right. All right. I have also heard, tell me if I've got this wrong, that the type of nuclear waste that's being used or nuclear material is also different. That you're taking basically waste from other power plants and using that as the fuel. Am I, am, I, am I got some of that right? So Yeah, so not every small modular reactor does that, but there are a wave, they, they call them breeder reactors or fast breeder reactors, which are essentially designed from the ground floor to run off of spent fuel from other nuclear plants. So this is one of the, obviously one of the big criticisms of nuclear power. Like, what about that's, the waste? That's crazy. What yeah. about the waste? What about the waste? What are we going to do with the waste? And that's a really valid concern. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it is. We, we do a pretty good job of dealing with it right now in, in dry cask storage. Uh, all of the nuclear waste ever produced by the domestic U.S. industry since the 50s could fit on a single football field 10 meters deep. So it's, I mean, people are concerned about waste. You know, maybe it's, it's fine to be concerned, but it's really not that big of a problem. But it becomes even less of a problem if these new fast breeders can come out and say, because there's still something like 80, 90% fissile material in spent nuclear fuel, meaning there's 80 to 90% potential energy left in that spent fuel. Really? And so if these fast breeders can then take that spent fuel, which is an untapped fuel source, and generate more electricity off of it, we're starting to get pretty darn close to renewable, aren't we? So in other words, you could take the waste from an old nuclear reactor, sure. which still has all this juice left in it, yep. bring it over here and get it down further. Yep. That's crazy. And once again, there are countries like Russia that are doing this right now. France is starting to get into the recycling their fuel for, for future use as well. And then there's research reactors in the US that are doing so as well. But uh, this, this whole effort kind of got stifled. This is a little bit of a detour, but back in the 70s by Jimmy Carter, the sort of the era of anti-nuclear proliferation right. and Jane Fonda doing no nukes. And so we kind of put the kibosh on this sort of research. But we've, we've kind of known that this was a possibility for a long time. And because of the recent interest in nuclear for decarbonization reasons, we're starting to get back into it. You also mentioned something else. And I, want, I want to talk about this, which was um, still using natural gas or coal, which is abundant and cheap and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, but doing something with the carbon. What is it? Yeah, so there's a lot of uh, excitement around the potential to use carbon capture. There's, there's various offshoots of carbon capture where sometimes you just capture the direct emissions from the plant. Sometimes you're taking that carbon and, and selling it for use in other products. Um, so far, there hasn't been a ton of real-world demonstration of this happening. I think there was one or two plants that got built and ended up 
getting suspended. We've once again, we've kind of known about this for a decade or two. In my mind, I'm I'm thinking the smokestack. So you got the smokestack, you're burning natural gas or or coal, and the smoke's coming out, and there's carbon in it. And people think this is a terrible, awful thing, and therefore you put it in a bottle. Right. And what do you do with the bottle? Uh, sometimes you they call it deep injection, where you just inject it underground so it can't escape into the atmosphere. Uh, sometimes you can sell it for use in industrial chemical, because carbon's a valuable resource, right? And so, so there's hope that there'll be a broader market for recycled carbon. Including in building materials. Right. It's crazy. Build buildings out of, of, out of the smokestack. Yep. I've also heard people say, we use it to continue fracking. Sure. That we use it to push it in the ground for other things, which was crazy about the, tell me if I got this one right, the Comanche plants. We've got pipelines already there going down to Texas where they need, where they need the carbon. And so the, there was a plan that said, well, instead of converting Comanche to natural gas, just keep it like it is and sell the carbon. We've already got a transfer system to bring it down to where the marketplace is. Yeah. And the PUC said, oh, no, 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 no. Excel wants to close it and build another mortgaged plant and make more money. Yeah, imagine that, right? Yeah, go Pr figure. Print some more money. Yeah. This report, people want to find it. Where, where's it going to be? Sure. So if you go to i2i.org. Uh, thinkfreedom.org. Or thinkfreedom.org and just click on the energy tab. It's one of the first posts up there. Um, and we're going to have a, it's the first in a series of three reports. So uh, this one looked specifically at the electricity sector. Uh, this next report that should be out by the time this airs, uh, we'll be looking at the same renewable goal with the added or the added component of electric home heating, uh, because that's another push to get natural gas use out of uh, Heaven forbid. homes. For, that's right, yeah. Heaven forbid uh, we stay warm. And then a third report, which will come out in probably another month or two, dealing with the same parameters, but with the tack on of EV charging. We're assuming 100% electric vehicles. So. All right, so the takeaway from all this, the governor says by 2040, all going to be renewable. If I'm hearing you, the takeaway is, yeah, if we did it, we can't afford it. Right. Even if we can't, even if we could afford it, we're going to have so many so many days where we won't be warm right. uh, or we won't be able to cool ourselves, people are going to be in trouble. And therefore, what is it we're supposed to do? Because I think people instinctively will believe this. They sure. know this. They know it in the bones. It is not achievable. Sure. It's not financially achievable. And looking around the globe, looking at, at Europe, where they're telling us, uh, we got problems. Don't charge your cars. Yeah. You know, we got we got brownouts. Don't charge your cars. You know, oh, people driving around in their in their gasoline powered cars are just fine. Don't charge your Teslas. So, what's the answer? So, some of the recommendations we say in the report is this gets back to the arbitrariness conversation we had earlier. Is just get, stop with the myopia. We're all we're all on board to eventually get cleaner. Uh, we, everyone has an interest in protecting the environment. There's no need to do pedal to the metal with such a narrow scope of resources with such limits that they're you know, reliant on weather 100% of the time or what have you. Open your mind to the potential of including nuclear and be open to innovations like we talked about with, you know, if there's some big thing where we can frack for geothermal, which is essentially what the governor's favorite, which I find humorous, by the way, that it's essentially fracking. Or if there's carbon capture breakthrough, be open to that because 
as you said, the people aren't going to stand for a future where they have to pay hundreds of billions of dollars and the electricity may or may not come on when they flip on the switch. Yeah, I guess for me, it's the cronyism of the green movement is so much uglier than big oil. <laughs> that, and the story that will be told generations from now is of, of the collusion of the green movement and ugly, ugly cronyism. And just how it is screwing people and hurting the environment and making people wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. And the hypocrisy of it is just so ugly. And it's hurting working families on a scale that we've never seen before. And people should be on the right side of history of this. If we want a cleaner world, we have to do some basic mathematics. And the basic mathematics is pretty clear. At some point, if you want to end carbon, whether it's, that's a good idea or a bad idea, you're going to have to open your eyes to hydroelectric. You're going to have to open your eyes to nuclear power. Yep. And you're also in a geo political world, you cannot bankrupt America and at the same time make China the world dominant financial superpower and while they make a new uh, uh, coal-fired power plant every day. You know, the, it, America's not the problem. China's the problem. And you're only disempowering the one country that could ever put any pressure on the real polluter. And these are just really simple things that I think Americans are blind to. And the cronyists are okay with that because they're getting rich. That's right. And do we, do we empower them or do we pull the, uh, the blinds off our eyes? Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's past time to pull the blinds off our eyes. I don't think people are going to stand for a future of, of crazy bills and unreliable power. We're making some very, very evil people very, very wealthy. <laughs> All right. Hey, Jake, thanks. It's incredible work. It's an eye-opener. Yeah. Pleasure to be here. If you've enjoyed this episode of Devil's Advocate, I hope you'll share it with a friend. And I hope you'll subscribe and follow the show. We have new ones released weekly. Remember, this audio was taken from our TV show. To watch it, just search the letters IITV for Independence Institute TV on YouTube for this and many other great conversations.